Hi, everyone. Please keep Matthew 23 open in front of you there, and also, as Brendan said before, your sermon outline, which will show us a bit where we're going. And let's pray as we look at this greatly challenging chapter together. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand and accept and be convicted of your good word through the mouth of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Please help us uh, to respond to you rightly tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've seen this church sign before. Uh, You know those signs out the front of churches? We don't really have one uh, that has like a Bible verse on it or a cheesy saying. Uh, This is one of the better ones, I think. It says this, The church isn't full of hypocrites. There's always room for more. It's the response, isn't it, to that accusation that the church is full of hypocrites. And there's something right about this this statement, isn't there? Uh, Genuine Christians, they confess that they're sinners. They know they don't do what is right. They ask God for forgiveness day by day. So it's a good sign in many ways, isn't it? Uh, But as is often the case and and often the problem with pithy little statements like this is, well, this. Uh, Yes, we admit we're sinners, but once we're saved by Jesus, he calls us to live a holy life, doesn't he? He commands us to live such good lives that people see our good works and praise God rather than see our hypocrisy and accuse us. Well, in our passage, whatever you think of this statement, uh, what our passage today, Jesus, he tackles the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders in particular. So we're in Matthew's gospel. We're picking up where we left off just about a month ago. Uh, remember that at this point in Matthew, Jesus, he's in Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, for the last week of his earthly life. And so he's causing a stir. At every point, everyone is talking to him. Everyone is talking about him. Everyone is watching and listening to him. And the pressure is mounting because of the Jewish religious leaders. Do you remember what we looked at in chapter 22, way back in the deep recesses of December uh, 2021? We saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish religious leaders, trying to trick Jesus, asking him tricky theological questions to get him to say something that he would regret something they could accuse him of and discredit him with. But what did Jesus do? He showed them up at every turn. He answered every challenge with unmatched wisdom. And then, then he asked them a question. And then look at chapter two, 22, verse 46, the last verse. What happened? No one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. How good is that? I love that moment. Jesus wins. He wins the game of to and fro with the religious leaders. They've got nothing left to say. And so at this point, the story takes a bit of a turn. The religious leaders have shown to be kind of useless in their quest to discredit Jesus. And so now Jesus, instead of talking in parables, instead of asking tricky questions to them, he goes on the front foot And he just says it exactly how it is. In this chapter, this is the whole chapter of Jesus speaking and rebuking and denouncing the Pharisees and the scribes. It's this unrelenting tirade against them. He just keeps digging into them. And we see some of Jesus' most strong language in all the Gospels. If you look at verse 1, look there. 
You see, he's speaking. Who is he speaking to? The crowds and the disciples. So it's not like these bold, these bold, strong words of Jesus are said in private, in behind closed doors. No, this is public. This is for all to hear. They're confronting and challenging words. They remind us that Jesus, meek and mild, is actually not very mild at all, especially when it comes to hypocrisy. And when it comes to the hypocrisy of Israel's leaders and how they're affecting others. Let's look at Jesus' words together. We're going to look at it in three sections. The first section is Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees and scribes. Now, before we actually look at the passage, you might be wondering why Jesus is picking on the Pharisees and scribes in particular. Why does he single them out here? Why doesn't he rebuke the Sadducees as well? I think it's because of verse 1. Look there. It says, The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. The Sadducees, they they were the priests, the political leaders of Israel. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they were like the true spiritual leaders of Israel. They were the ones who devoted themselves to God's word. They were the ones who taught God's word and devoted themselves to studying it and pointing it out to others and applying it. And so Jesus says they sit in the seat of Moses. Moses, the great one who was responsible for God giving his law to Israel through him, those first five books of the Old Testament, well, now the scribes and the Pharisees stood in his place, stood in Moses' place as Israel's teachers, preaching, reminding, explaining, applying God's law to life. And so they have a really serious responsibility. And it's the Pharisees and scribes who took that responsibility seriously, and so they, they followed God's law in all the ways that they thought they could. The Sadducees, they were a bit more loose, a bit more open in their corruption. Uh, But the Pharisees, they looked squeaky clean. They held themselves up as examples to be followed. That's why Jesus, he reserves his strongest rebuke for them. They sit in the seat of Moses, teaching Israel. And that's why, as striking as it is, he says, do what they tell you. They are teaching you God's law, so obey them, Jesus says. But, and this is where Jesus begins his rebuke. Look at verse 3. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it, but don't do what they do, because they don't practice what they teach. They say God's words and God's commands, but they don't really do them. And Jesus explains what he means. What do the Pharisees do instead? They do two things. Number one, they don't care about others. Look at verse 4. It says, They, the Pharisees, tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. As they teach, they put a heavy burden of guilt and requirement on people. They require extra things to be done for God. They have no heart of compassion for the people they teach. They don't help them to grow as believers. They don't help them to know and obey God's word. They, they stand aloof, uninterested. Here, this is what you have to do. Okay, see ya. And then I'll judge you because you don't do it. They burden the people. One, they don't care about people. And two, they care about themselves. That's what verse 5 and on is all about. They do everything, Jesus says, to be observed to be praised by others. And then he gives them some examples. And some of them are kind of funny. Uh, The first one is they have big phylacteries, uh, which is a great word. 
a phylactery. What is it? It's a box that Jews would have with scriptures written on the inside that they would then strap to their heads as a way of reminding them they needed to be on about God's word every day, every hour. And the Pharisees, well, they had big phylacteries. They had the biggest boxes on their foreheads to show that they were serious and that they really wanted to be godly. Jesus says they lengthened their tassels. Jewish men had tassels at the end of their robes. The the Pharisees had the longest tassels to again show we are extra serious about following God's commands. And then Jesus says they love to have first place in society. The front seats, the special position, the acclaim, the titles like rabbi, honoured teacher. Jesus says they've got it totally upside down. All back to front. They don't care about people. They only care about themselves. So Jesus says, verse 8, 9, and 10. We're kind of racing through a few of these verses. He says, don't seek the title of rabbi, teacher. Don't seek to be called father or master. Don't seek the praise and prestige that a title might give you. No, God is your true teacher. God is your father, the Messiah, the Christ. He is your master. And then look at verse 11. This is Jesus' radical teaching in total opposition to what the Pharisees think and do and say. Verse 11. The greatest among you will be your servant. Someone who does basic, practical things for others. You associate greatness with service. Jesus does. Who is someone that you think of as great? Someone you aspire to be like? Are they a servant? Is it because they are a servant? Do you strive to be great in life? What are you striving for? What greatness are you trying to achieve? Is it making yourself lower than everyone else around you so that you might do what they need done to help them? The practical, unflashy, even menial things that other people need. That shows love to them. I'll never forget when I was at Bible college. And uh, one particular week, the men's bathroom was particularly unpleasant. Uh, Let's just say it was disgusting. Uh, And what did the the students do about that? Nothing. Well, they contributed to it, obviously. We did nothing. I'm ashamed to say that. No, instead, what happened? One of our lecturers... In fact, the oldest of our lecturers, our teacher, the one who it was our elder, he noticed. And so he got down on his hands and knees and he scrubbed toilets for us. Let Jesus' words sink in there. The greatest among you will be your servant. Which makes Jesus the greatest, the greatest who has ever lived. Because he came not to be served but to serve. And he gave his life for us. How can you serve more than that? Going to the cross for the salvation of many. You see how Jesus is great because he serves. Do you see how Jesus just flips our worldly values totally on their head? And you see how he just flips the Pharisees' values on their head, exposing their pride. Look at how Jesus puts it in verse 12. It's the same thing in, in just different words. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is one of Jesus' favorite proverbs. If you exalt yourself over others and you seek the honor of a title like the Pharisees, you will be humbled. 
brought low by God when the time comes. But if you humble yourself, not seeking a title for people to praise you, not seeking to impress God or whoever, but seeking to be a servant, well, then God will exalt you in his good timing. According to Jesus, this is the problem with the Pharisees. This is his assessment. They're not, they're not humble to care for others. They're too focused on exalting themselves. And so Jesus, he just then, for the rest of the chapter, continues this tirade against the Pharisees and the scribes. And so we'll look at the next section. We look at the woes against the Pharisees. Have you ever been in a conversation, maybe you had one tonight, I don't know, where it's awkward, someone says something awkward, but then that person just keeps saying awkward things, and so it just keeps getting more and more and awkward. That's Jesus here. He rebuked the Pharisees, it's already awkward, and now what does he do? He keeps going. He keeps going with seven woe-to-you statements, seven solemn warnings that the Pharisees need to hear, seven ways the Pharisees are unfaithful, ungodly leaders. Now, if, you're, if you have a very keen eye, you might actually count eight woes in this passage. Uh, you might notice a footnote on verse 14. That's because in our best manuscripts of Matthew's gospel, uh, we don't have verse 14. So it looks like verse 14 was not original to Matthew when he wrote. So there's seven woes. Jesus has seven woes. Seven, the number of perfection, of completeness. This is Jesus giving his full and complete and final word. His word of judgment. On these Pharisees. And we didn't read all of them before, so we're just going to look at each one briefly to see more what the Pharisees were like and why that is such a problem, why Jesus condemns them. Come with me. Woe number one is in verse 13. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You lock up the kingdom of heaven from people, for you don't go in and you don't allow others to enter in. What's the effect of their life, their ministry on people's lives? They're shutting people out of the kingdom of God. Does it get any worse than that? To stand at the door of eternal life, you don't go in, and then you close the door if anyone else wants to come. That's awful, isn't it? Rejecting God's salvation and then stopping others from receiving it too. Woe number two is similar. It's in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to to make one proselyte, one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. You work hard to make someone a Pharisee like you, but then you only make that person worse off. More hypocritical, more heartless, more proud, you only lead them straight to the gates of hell. Woe number three is a long one. It's in verse 16, and it And it has to do with taking oaths. You see, God's law was really clear. Look at Numbers chapter 30 on your screen, on screen. It says, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word. He must do whatever he has promised. God says, If you swear an oath, I swear by heaven or I swear by the temple of the Lord that I will do this or that, you have to do it, God says. You must keep your word or it is sin. But the Pharisees, they've come up with this system, this, this really finicky system of bigger and smaller O's, of O's that are smaller, and so if you really want to, well, you can back out of that promise. You don't have to do it. Oh, I only made an oath by the temple. I didn't make an oath by the gold of the temple, you know, the precious gold. So I guess I don't have to do it. 
Jesus says, no, blind guides. You, you are leading yourselves, you're leading others into sin because an oath is an oath. And if you swear on some smaller thing, well, you're still accountable to God for that thing because your word is your word. You see the picture that he's showing us of the Pharisees. They're on about doing the bare minimum, looking like they're doing lots, but really only doing the bare minimum to scrape through. They look like they're doing lots, but they're trying to do as least as possible. And we see that as well in woe number four. Look at verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You pay a tenth of dill and mint and cumin, yet you have neglected the more important matters of law, justice, mercy, faith. God's law required Israel to pay 10% of their income, 10% of their produce from the land to God, to the work of his temple. And the Pharisees, just, they just took that to the extreme. So they could say, aha, I've done the law, look at me. They, would just give, they wouldn't just give 10% of their income, they would give 10% of their little herb garden. They'd get their scissors out and kind of chop little 10% leaves off and say, ha, I've given, I've gone over and above, I've fulfilled the law. Jesus says, sure, that's fine. If you want to give of your herbs, you're allowed to. But you're a hypocrite because you're focusing on these little herbs while you ignore the big things. Being just, being merciful to others, having a true life of faith and faithfulness. And he gives us an image of this in verse 24. It's actually a really funny one. It's kind of weird. Look there, verse 24. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, yet gulp down a camel. What's that about? Think about it. There's a gnat, a really small gnat, and a, sorry, and a camel, big, big animal. A gnat is this tiny little bug, and some Jews would strain their wine before they drank it just in case they swallowed a gnat and so became unclean, unclean according to the law. They would strain a gnat out of their wine before they drank it. So Jesus is saying, yeah, sure, you work hard that you don't swallow a tiny little bug and become unclean. But then, they didn't literally do this, but then it's as if you go and you just gulp down, you eat a whole camel, which is the biggest unclean animal you could find. It doesn't add up, Jesus says. You can't say, aha, look, I did this very small thing, I'm obeying God's law, but then you go ahead and just sin in all these other ways and say, no, it's all good. You can't ignore the huge matters and say, well, I was obedient in this little thing. Hypocrite, Jesus says. It would be like your boss at work saying to you, hey, can you lock the door at the end of the day when you leave work? And you say, okay, the whole rest of the day you do no work. Instead, you put five more locks on the door. You close the door at the end of the day. You lock all the locks and you say, I did what I was told. I did did my work. I did what you said, boss. He will fire you. (laughs) She will throw you out. (laughs) That won't work. The Pharisees are like that. They make themselves busy trying to do the bare minimum of God's law. And they ignore the heart of honouring God with all their life. The next two woes say the same thing in a bit of a different way. Look at verse 25, woe number 5. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You look good and clean on the outside. You look righteous, but you're not. Your heart is rotten. And uh, number six, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and every impurity. Verse 28, he explains, In the same way on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. How good they look in front of others, but, but how sinful, how ungodly their hearts are towards God. And all of this builds up to woe number seven in verse 30. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 30. You say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophet's blood. Jesus says, You therefore testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. What's his point? You are just like your ancestors, Jesus says who killed the prophets, God's messengers, because they didn't like what God was saying. You're the same as them, because I stand here, Jesus stands as God's true prophet, God's final messenger, and you won't listen to me. And in just a few days' time, they would kill him, just like they killed the prophets centuries earlier. Seven woes, seven words of warning. Seven ways these Pharisees and scribes look great on the outside, but actually reject God and his word time and time again. So Jesus says, judgment is coming. This is the last part of our passage. You won't get away with this forever, he says. The day of judgment is coming. In verse 33, he says, how can you therefore escape from being condemned to hell? In verse 35 and 36, he says, You, this generation, those who reject me, who reject God and his word, will be punished for all the righteous blood, all the prophets that were killed until this point. You'll be responsible for it all. What a judgment. Are there more strong words that Jesus speaks? I'm not sure. He says in verse 37, It's not just the Pharisees, but it's all Jerusalem. Any Israelite who does not respond rightly to Jesus. Look there at verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. I want to gather you to myself, Jesus says. His heart, his compassion is is stirred for them. But you are not willing. You won't repent. You, you won't believe in me. You won't turn from your sin and your pride and hypocrisy and your love of self and be forgiven. So their house, the house of Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, all those in Jerusalem who reject Jesus will face the righteous wrath and anger of God. Their house will be emptied out. Nothing will be left. And it's a sobering chapter, isn't it? A solemn warning, a powerful warning from Jesus as he pronounces this judgment against unfaithful Israel, his own who did not receive him. Most of all, the hypocrites, the Pharisees and the scribes. You see, it's a terrible thing, an evil thing, to claim to worship God, to claim to be God's people, yet really worship yourself and ignore his word and even lead others astray. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, Jesus says. 
But it's important for us now to take some time thinking about what all of that means. Having looked at the passage, having thought about what Jesus means, how do we understand these words and what do we take from them for ourselves? Because Jesus' words, they apply to us or don't apply to us in a few different ways. So I've got three ways we can understand and apply these words to finish. The first is to recognize that Jesus is actually not speaking to us who are alive today here in this room first. First of all, Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees of his day. He's rebuking, he's giving judgment on them. He's talking to the crowds and disciples of Jerusalem then. And he's trying to urge them, crying out to them, don't follow the ways of the Pharisees. So these words of rebuke and and the judgment, will they apply to the Jews of Jesus' day? That generation who had rejected God, that generation proved it by rejecting Jesus, his Messiah. And so they are the ones who face the woes in this passage. And when you think about it, it's actually Jesus' words that kind of prove that they don't receive him, that they don't worship God. Because it's after this that they totally reject him altogether. Like verse 1, like I said before, Jesus said these words publicly, and he did that on purpose as well. He said these words so that they might hear, so that they might be angry, so that they might be, so that they might hate him more. Why would Jesus do that? so that they might reject him and then plot to kill him and then arrest him at night and band together to falsely accuse him and shout over Pontius Pilate for his execution until he gave in. That's what Jesus is doing in these chapters, did you realize? Jesus is taking himself to the cross. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. That's what he's doing in these chapters. Saying the things he needs to say so that the things that need to happen will happen. And so strangely, we should be thankful. We should read these words and be thankful, these chapters of Matthew, and realize that at just the right time, Jesus said these words, so that through Israel rejecting their Messiah, well, he might die. And then the gospel would go out from Jerusalem to all the nations, to us. We should be thankful that Jesus was controlling that situation, keeping it perfectly on track so that at the appointed time, he might go to the cross for us. He might give his life as a ransom for many. He might make himself poor that we might be rich, that he might face the wrath of God so that we might be forgiven and freed and given eternal life. These words should stir our hearts to be thankful For Jesus, our amazing and humble Lord, who went to the cross, took himself there for us. Number two, these words apply to all Christians. uh, Sorry, to all Christian leaders. So yes, Jesus, he was speaking to those first unfaithful leaders of Israel then. Uh, But every generation has its Pharisees, doesn't it? Every generation of the church has pastors and leaders who minimize God's commands, or who put a heavy burden on others, or who say one thing and do another, or who, God forbid, shut the kingdom to people. And so we can apply these words to pastors and elders and ministers and to leaders of any ministry where God's word is taught. What's the message for pastors and Christian leaders? Don't be like this. 
Woe to you if you are like the Pharisees. See the sin, see the judgment that comes on the Pharisees and fear. How easy is it for us to seek a title and a name for ourselves? How easy is it for us to serve yourself instead of being truly great and serving others? Repent and always strive to be a humble leader if God has placed you in that position. Repent and then teach faithfully, live faithfully with the strength God provides. How easy can it be for us as well to follow leaders who are like the Pharisees? Watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing, for pastors and teachers who are like the Pharisees who might tell you to do something and you might do it if they're teaching God's word. But don't do what they do. If they clean the outside of the cup, if they look good, but their inside, their hearts are rotten. And you should pray for us. Pray for every minister of St. George North and every leader in every ministry of St. George North that we might be leaders like Jesus, not like the Pharisees. This applies to all Christian leaders. But they don't just apply to Christian leaders, do they? These words apply to all Christians. Why? Because Jesus hates hypocrisy. Don't we see that here? We see his hatred for saying one thing and doing another, for seeking our own glory instead of his, for obeying God's word on our terms, not his, for trying to look righteous but having a heart of lust or greed, for neglecting justice, mercy, and true faith. These, are the, these words are a reminder that all of us fall short of the glory of God, that all of us are hypocrites, Because who of us has not been like the Pharisees in some way? Who of us doesn't struggle with doing things to be seen by others or or, or with exalting ourselves? How many times did did you think as you read those woes before, how many times was your conscience pricked by the Holy Spirit because you think, oh, I do that? Confess your sin and remember, God's grace covers the sin of hypocrisy. Praise God for that and flee from that sin. But in particular, maybe these words are a wake-up call to some Christians who are just going through the motions of the Christian life altogether, who uh, you know, might be keeping, doing just enough to keep up appearances while quietly just seeking the things of this world first, not the things of God's kingdom. You know, The Christian who might be around church, even heavily involved in ministry, but not seeking to know the Lord themselves, not seeking to invest in brothers and sisters in Christ, not seeking to share the good news of Jesus with anyone, not seeking to love and serve like their Lord. Or the Christian who sees themselves above and superior to others, exalting themselves like the Pharisees. Maybe some of us need to hear this woe, this warning from Jesus. If you do, there is always grace to those who are willing to repent. Don't be like the unwilling people of Jerusalem whose house became desolate. Come to Jesus. Humble yourself. We're all called to repent of the sin of the Pharisees, to humble ourselves, and then we will be exalted. Not by ourselves, but exalted by God, forgiven by his grace and freed so that we can live faithfully for him with true faith, not false pretense with love and service of others, with integrity and truth, all the opposite of hypocrisy. And all for the glory of God and not ourselves.
Let's pray for that. Our gracious Father, thank you for the bold and confronting words of Jesus we see in this chapter. Please humble us before these words and help us to respond rightly to them, to confess our sin of hypocrisy and know your wonderful grace and then to live lives of obedience to you, of joy in salvation that that flows out in wanting to do good works for you. And Father, we pray that you would help uh, the leaders of our church to be faithful leaders, unlike these Pharisees, and that you'd help all of us uh, to submit to faithful leaders and to submit to your word, and that we would do that with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.